Earlier this year, when SARS-CoV-2 was nothing but a name, I jumped in a land cruiser with a bunch of scientists and headed out west. We were off to collect cores of the wetlands, floodplains and billabongs of the Murray-Darling, one of the largest river systems on Earth and a melting pot of environmental, social and political tension. This is a divided land between the desert and the river, the political left and right, city, country, upstream, downstream, drought and flood. I came to realise there is no right and wrong in this landscape. Everything is in a constant state of flux, veering between extremes. This eternal balancing act is one that policymakers farmers and environmentalists alike are yet to master. What's correct one year can be outdated by next season. In the land of drought and flooding rains, the truth can't be held down. It writhes like a cut snake, like a river. Water truly is the liquid of life. After days driving through the red sands, limestone mounds and rocky plains of the interior, suddenly you drop into a veritable paradise. Vineyards and fruit trees were first on the horizon, but the Chardonnay and apricots were only the vanguard of the agricultural behemoth that has rooted itself in the riverbanks and floodplains. About $22 billion in food and fibre and another $8 billion in tourism is generated each year along the 77,000 kilometre span of the Murray-Darling. The numbers are perhaps too large to truly grasp. There are some things that just can't be described with a spreadsheet. Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 4 where we finish off our Into the Wild series, at least for now. Today we begin on the Murray-Darling, a river system that connects all Australians and in ways you might not realise, things also get a bit fishy as we go face to face with the mud-sucking nemesis of river conservation, the European carp. And as our homes and effects become more well-travelled than we are, how can you get from the couch to South America for 40 bucks? My name's David Barnett Clement. Let's find out as I show you how to be a mammal. A core is pretty much what it sounds like. A tube or similar that is drilled, 
pushed or vibrated down into the ground to collect a nice long sequence of layers. In our case it was layers of sediment, but it can also be ice, rock, peat. If you can stand on it, scientists have probably caught it. And why were we here, far from home and collecting tubes of dirt in the middle of a swamp? I often asked myself this question as I got sunburnt, windburnt and very very muddy. It's because some of the simplest questions about the Murray-Darling are still to be answered. Questions like, how dry does the river get? How wet can a season be? Should the entrance to the mouth of the Murray in South Australia, now deliberately blocked, be open? Well, we don't know, and this is where the mud gets involved. Okay, so, um, just tell me who you are to begin with. Yeah, it's a existential crisis question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so my name is Alicia Dakali, Dr. Alicia Dakali, I guess I call myself these days, or nowadays. Um, and I'm an early career researcher and lecturer at the University of Wollongong. The best and easiest way to describe what I do is I would say I'm a geomorphologist and everyone's like, well, what's that? And I'm like, well, have you heard about geology? So geology is based on rocks, whereas geomorphology is more based on the sediments before they turn into rocks. And so geo, you know, being the rock sediment component and the morphology being the shape and evolution of things. And so um, it's basically just trying to understand how environmental systems such as rivers or coastlines have evolved um, and the shape of those systems and the evolution of those systems over a period of time. And why do we care about that? Basically because to understand the future and predict what change might happen in the future, we really need to have a good grapple on what's happening in the past. The Murray-Darling, it's an incredibly large system. It goes all the way from Queensland right down to South Australia. And it's also made of two rivers, two major rivers, which I think some people often confuse as one. Can you just give me an overview of what is the system like, what's it made of, and how does it kind of characterise itself across this distance? Yeah, so the Murray-Darling Basin is a really um, big river system in eastern Australia. It covers about 14% of Australia's landmass, and it's our, our largest drainage basin. It's quite significant. It's also known as Australia's food bowl, right? Um, and basically, the, the basin itself is comprised of two main river systems. Up in the north, we've got the Darling River System, and then down in the south, it's the Murray River System. And um, they meet down in Wentworth. They basically cover as well... I mean, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, ACT meet at Wentworth and then drain through South Australia before they um, hit the lower lakes Alexandrina and Albert and then flow to the Southern Ocean. So it's a really quite significantly large drainage system. And because it's covering such a, I guess, a, a wide spatial scale of Australia's landmass, it's influenced the Northern Darling Basin and the Murray, the Southern Murray Basin are both influenced by really different climate regimes which contributes to their rainfall being different. So they have really different rainfall patterns. And then from that, basically, the stream flow or the discharge within the northern Darling and the southern Murray Basins are also super variable or different, sorry, uh, because of the uh, different rainfall patterns. And, and so the, I guess the Darling is pretty much characterised by really intermittent and variable episodic flows and floods um, due to that rainfall signal, whereas the, the Murray is much more stable in its base flow are much more reliable and reliant due to the the spring seasonal snowmelt um, and rainfall patterns that influence the, the southern Murray Basin. So we are at the bottom of the river in the sense that we're at the very base, the end of the system. These muds that we're extracting from the floodplains and the billabongs, once you crack open that tube, the muds themselves, they're stripy, aren't they? Like a zebra. Yeah, so... 
basically this whole lower um, floodplain sediments or, or material that's accumulated um, through time down transported from the rivers is is characterized by this laminated sequence and this barcode layer that I was kind of talking about and um, basically it's a whole series of black muds or clays and silts and then it's interbedded with these really light gray clay layers and um, initially we we kind of stumbled across this laminated sequence um, of Holocene in age and and Holocene is referring to the last 12,000 years of I guess sediment accumulation from the whole Murray-Darling Basin because we're down at the very bottom of the system. But this laminated barcode sequence, we were able to, I guess, um, geochemically fingerprint using a whole series of different scientific techniques to be able to basically uh, show a distinct sedimentological signature. And what that means is that we can really say that the light layers are characterised or composed of sediments that are delivered specifically from the Darling catchment and the darker background material that the lighter layers are interbedded within are more characteristic and a fingerprint of sediments sourced from the Murray catchment. Yeah, and you've you've kind of gone on to say that these flood sequences are also an indicator of climate because obviously it has to rain quite a bit for all those floods to come down. Why do you think, like, if we're, we're taking these cores, we're trying to access the barcode of the floodplain, so to speak, why is it important to then try and move that further into the climate system? Why do we want to know what the climate's been like in this part of Australia, you know, since the Holocene? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Australia has really high, uh, a, a high amount of climatic, natural climatic variability. We go through quite extreme floods and, and drought regimes over prolonged periods of time. And so what we have with this laminated barcode sequence is a, a direct record of flood and drought regimes that have occurred in the past, which is really significant because at the moment we, we manage um, water resources and the Murray-Darling Basin, our food bowl, based on only this really short snapshot or window of, of time, which is only 120 years, this instrumental record, which is when we as Europeans entering this landscape first started taking records. And the studies that have been done so far have shown that really this 120-year uh, record doesn't actually capture the full range of natural climatic variability that has been experienced in Australia. We've only got a really small insight into what these flood and drought regimes look like and that we, we need much, much longer records, what we would call paleo records that go back farther in time, thousands of years, that capture uh, a higher, a longer variability of what of the flood and drought extremes we've experienced in Australia. So we're trying to reconstruct the past climate and fill in those records. In a land of environmental extremes, it's important to know just how extreme things can get, especially when it comes to the food bowl of Australia. If you have ever eaten stone fruit, enjoyed an almond milk latte, if you've ever washed down a nice steak or lamb chop with red wine while wearing a pair of cotton jeans, you can thank the waters of the Murray-Darling. We are also in the enviable position of producing more food than we can eat, and our high-quality agricultural products are sought after worldwide, one of the many reasons our children are taught songs about the lucky country in school. Unfortunately, river management is not something to gamble on, and poor policy has seen the waters of the Murray-Darling slow. In some places, they have stopped altogether, and in Australia, when the water runs out, so does your luck. Of course, we aren't the only animals that rely on the river. 
As parts of New South Wales brace for extreme heatwave conditions, there are concerns the soaring temperatures may cause more fish kills in the state's waterways. With more than a million fish dead in the Darling River at Menindee near Broken Hill, the federal government has called an emergency meeting of water officials, river operators and scientists to discuss what can be done to try to prevent it from happening again. The image of grown men cradling dead Murray Cod in 2019 has been branded into the national psyche. Those men were Dick Arnold and Rob McBride, filmed by McBride's daughter Kate, who went on to become the face of the crisis in the following months. My name is Dick Arnold. I'm here with Rob McBride for this really sad bloody shot here, caused by the government, environmental disaster, and look at these iconic fish of Australia being treated like this, you have to be bloody disgusted with yourself. This is the result of draining the Manitou Lakes twice in four years and killing the system. This fish is 100 years old. It's never coming back. This is bloody disgraceful. Absolutely. Absolutely. The fish that died in 2019 did so for a number of reasons. Low water levels, rapid fluctuations in water temperature, drought, and an explosion of blue-green algae, all of which removed oxygen from the water. What you won't find in the reports from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, however, is a recognition of the impact of decades of river mismanagement. In July of that year, a few months after the fish kills, a report was put together by the New South Wales Parliamentary Research Service. The report found that on top of the three large fish kills which made the news, another 22 fish kills were reported during that deadly summer. The figures are summarised in a small table and colour-coded in shades of blue. Tens of deaths receive a lighter, attractive tint, the type of colour you might paint your kitchen. Numbers in the hundreds of thousands are only three shades darker. The table is neat and clean, like a colour card you'd pick up in the paint section of your local hardware store. I doubt it's a coincidence the authors didn't choose to use the actual colour of the river water, a toxic brown-green sludge. No one is going to paint the kitchen dying river with a hint of fish. It just doesn't sell. The parliamentary report did conclude that long-term factors contributing to the fish kills include a drought, water management policies and climate change, a similar study produced by the Australian Academy of Science hit the issue right on the head. The root cause of the fish kills was simply that there wasn't enough water. It makes sense when you think about it. If a river stops flowing, it's not really a river anymore, just a glorified puddle. The fish kills haven't stopped either. This year, in good old 2020, more fish suffocated on the banks of our largest river. You just didn't hear about it. The problem is incredibly complex. This isn't just about farmers and fish, it's about our nation. The Murray-Darling is the canary in the coal mine, a litmus test, measuring how well our country can deal with the types of challenges a warming climate will begin to increasingly throw our way. Given the scale of the problem, the sheer size of the river system, it seems that policy is the only hope for the Murray-Darling now. If that's the case, it's unfortunate that, policy-wise, the buck stops with politicians. Effigies of our elected leaders have been burnt in the towns of the Murray-Darling, and the political history of the river is a toxic mess, 
lacking transparency or consistency. It's funny how, in a pandemic, we demand our politicians follow the science, yet when it comes to our most important river system, ideology and big business seem to do the job. I don't live along the banks of the Murray-Darling, and it's pretty likely that you don't either. And in a country where the national narrative is increasingly shifting towards our metropolitan areas, it's easy not to care about some distant river. What's out of sight is out of mind, right? Except it's not. You and I rely on the waters of the Murray-Darling. Agriculture is a big part of this country's economy, and at its simplest, we all need to eat, and a lot of food is grown in the basin. So how do we start the process of reconnecting ourselves with the ecosystems and environments we rely upon? Well, luckily for you and I, that process is already underway, and it's being spearheaded by a worldwide group of researchers. They're called human geographers, and it is therefore my great pleasure to invite Professor Noel Castry from the University of Manchester, the University of Wollongong, and Episode 3 back to the microphone. So what is human geography? Yeah, geography is, in a sense, uh, the total discipline. Um, it, its ambitions are very grand. Um, it's an attempt to study the surface of the Earth, both in its physical and, and human dimensions. Um, and I think a very good definition of geography is it, it's an attempt to understand the what and why of where. Human geography is unique in that it straddles both the hard and fast world of empirical science and the messy realm of emotion and belief, religion, ethics, politics and culture. This is why one of human geography's biggest concerns is trying to work out why so many of us don't feel all that connected to nature. We are often feeling very disconnected from the natural world because we live, many of us, in densely packed cities where green spaces are quite limited, they're quite few and far between. Many people, for example, living in high-rise apartments don't have access to their own gardens. And in fact, the public green space nearby might be quite low quality green space. There might not be many wild animals around or even insects. So that's the kind of evidence that's in front of your eyes. But actually, the reality is that modern humans, particularly in Western countries, are more intimately connected to nature than ever before. It's just that we don't see it with our own eyes every day. A very simple example would be visiting Ikea to purchase a new table. And once you begin to trace the uh, chain of connections between the wood that makes the table that you see in Ikea and where that wood's come from, uh, the ecosystem that was affected by chopping down the tree, the pollution that was caused transporting the wood from uh, you know, somewhere like South America or wherever it came from um, to the factory. That's just one example of the millions of different long distance connections we have with the biophysical world that connect us deeply to it, but they're essentially invisible to us on a day-to-day -day basis. Now this is where my introductory claim of visiting South America for $40 comes from. IKEA might not be the best example, I mean there's only two stores in Sydney and I personally have never been all that fond of flat packs, but there are, as Noel's just pointed out, millions of different connections you can make. Packet of cheap two minute noodles? That palm oil will take you straight to the edges of the Amazon. Dethawed bassa fillets from the fishmonger will transport you to Vietnam. Getting a cheap cotton shirt in Kmart? That might well have been grown in the northern Darling River back home but it almost certainly took a tour via Bangladesh. 
If you buy some nondescript fertilizer for the lawn, you've probably just landed in guano, that's bird poo, on a small island in the Pacific. You get the idea. For 40 bucks, you aren't limited to South America. A trip around the world is possible if you spend your cash right. You claim that the topic of nature is used by people like journalists, artists, and especially in Australia, I'm saying this anecdotally, politicians to govern ideas and the feelings and the actions of ordinary people. If that's the case, if, if we can utilize nature as communicators to change people's thoughts or opinions about a certain matter, where's the disconnect being that we can't seem to do this when it comes to reconnecting people? Well, one of the, one of the, one of the suggested answers to that has come from um, a group in California, the, the kind of public intellectuals, uh, a group that's linked to what's called the Breakthrough Institute. They've been a little bit controversial, um, but the essential idea is that for a very long time, we've put natural things into one category and social or human things into another category. And that creates a problem because it tends to make us think that there's a trade-off to be uh, achieved between the two things. So in Australia, for example, I'm sure you're well aware that one of the reasons you've had the so-called climate wars, where there have been very limited uh, attempts to uh, tackle greenhouse gas emissions in Australia. So the way that, for example, Tony Abbott tried to frame that was to say, actually, that's a green issue and it's an attack on jobs. It's an attack on economic growth. Rather than reframing it, and when this is what the Breakthrough Institute are trying to achieve, it's to say, actually, maybe we need a different vision of what jobs look like in the future. Maybe we need a different vision of what growth looked like and maybe we can do that in a way that is deeply green uh, so that you can sort of have your cake and eat it you can protect the natural environment you can create good well-paid skilled jobs and you can achieve a form of growth that is not so ecologically destructive as the forms of growth that have prevailed for well over a century globally so economic growth and prosperity and the environment are not mutually exclusive one doesn't cancel out the other. And we really do need to stop thinking we're so special. Being an ape with a big head does have its upsides, but whether you like it or not, we're all part of the circle of life. And if you're still not convinced, I'll let Noel finish this one off. COVID-19 is a very graphic reminder that we are mammals. You know, it is absolutely, it's an in-your-face reminder that we are physical entities who are vulnerable notwithstanding in a country like Australia or the UK, all our technology and all our wealth, we are highly vulnerable. So will it be enough to break us out of that kind of exceptionalist conceit that you've just referred to? Um, unfortunately, I, I doubt it in the short term. I think it's a long-term project of building the arguments and the evidence to persuade people that we do need to live in a different way, that there are better ways to exist. That, that doesn't mean uh, returning to some sort of medieval standard of living where we all walk around barely clothed and have to live in you know, huts in the woods. Uh, I think that's a complete caricature of environmentalist thinking. Um, and it is about, as I said before, having a different imagination of what is possible. This, it seems, is the challenge of our generation, not just to live differently, but to start thinking outside the box, reimagining what our relationship with the environment can look like.
We now return to the banks of the Murray-Darling, where some of this reimagining is taking place, where people are exploring environmental change and confronting their own role in altering the ecosystems around them. But the animal uniting these people and this movement is not really hero material. In fact, most Aussies harbour a bone-deep hatred for it. Don Watson, in his celebrated book The Bush, brilliantly sums up our relationship with this infamous fish. He writes, They grew fat. They churned their dams into soup. When hooked, they fought like a football sock might fight. And when cooked, their soggy flesh tasted of little except mud. Anglers despise them and leave them to rot on the riverbank. This rather unfortunate, gill-bearing, aquatic, craniate animal is indeed the European carp, a fish that outbreeds native populations, muddies the water, and both eats and uproots aquatic plant life. And they are everywhere. So carp uh, might be quite widely known to, to many people in inland Australia. They are a fish that was introduced into Australia um, potentially at least 100 years ago, as early as 100 years ago. In the 1970s, after major flooding events across the basin, across the Murray-Darling Basin and in our inland rivers, they became widely distributed and dispersed from those big flooding events. They're extremely tolerant to variation in the environment, in variability in our riparian or our river environments quite a severe problem in our inland rivers. This is Jennifer Atchison, a senior lecturer in the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities at the University of Wollongong and a research member of the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space. Her research has uncovered some unique insights into our relationship with this unpopular fish. One of the uses we have found for carp is as a fertiliser, but it takes a lot of animals to produce the stuff you spray on your veggie garden. One of the ways we catch carp en masse is through community fishing competitions, one of which Jennifer describes in her paper. People brought the fish they had caught in canvas buckets, old ice coolers, plastic buckets, the open pallet of the back of a truck. Paul stood beside the fertiliser trailer, ready to take the already weighed fish and tip them into the holding tank. Suited up in overalls, rubber boots and gloves, he also had fixed vapor rub, methylated ointment stuffed up his nose and a breathing respirator fitted. It was barely enough to cut through the rising smell of dead, rotting fish in the summer heat. Rob was bent over for most of the time, singing and slopping fish from bucket to bucket. As each bucket was tipped, a sharp burst of ammonia punctuated the air and those closest gagged or grimaced. Occasionally, a bucket would split under the strain and Rob would cry out as pockets of laughter erupted from the crowd. Decomposing carp slopped out onto the ground, bodies breaking apart, thick fluids streaming onto the grass. It doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant experience, does it? You just can't get away from the smell of it. It's an overwhelming smell. These um, these events take place often in late summer. So we're talking, you know, 40 plus degrees in the late summer afternoon. And uh, there's usually a collection point at some place where all the fish are being brought in and many of them have been held for a number of days. So they've been dead for a number of days. Uh, they're not held on ice because they're not being kept to eat. 
and people are tipping out rotting fish out onto the ground, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them out onto the ground, and then they're being loaded up into a tank. So the, the experience of that personally was confronting, and, it, and it, it's that embodied experience which really prompted this paper because I hadn't expected that. I, I hadn't expected that knowing intellectually what was going on that I would still find that I couldn't control my reaction to that. It, it was an overwhelming kind of physical response. Now, I know you're already wrinkling your nose in disgust, but spare a thought for the fish. Because carp are a big pest, we treat them differently to other animals. They are a nuisance, a stinking, rotting problem that we have to deal with. And this forms the basis of Jennifer's paper, that we tend to think of carp as gross and that we are indifferent to their suffering. Our framework for ethics is different in invasive species management. Our framework for ethics doesn't really address, at this point in time, the life of the animal. And it plays out um, in, in the execution of death as well for invasive species. We don't, we don't apply the same kinds of um, humane deaths to all different kinds of invasive animals. So... Uh, we're concerned with large mammals to make sure that the if they are shot that, that that's a clean kill, that's a, a quick death, for example. Uh, but we don't apply that same kind of thinking to fish. We don't apply that same kind of thinking to frogs or to toads or to cane toads, uh, as another example. Um, so in essence, what I'm saying is that our, our current framework for thinking about ethics is not uh, expansive enough yet to deal with this situation. It's not all bad news though. Jennifer's research has also found that carp are becoming a great way to get kids outside and away from screens. Fishing events bring communities together and ignite conversations about river management and pollution. Despite their inherent problems, carp are one of the few things that unite people both up and down the river. So where do we go to from here? Well, in the case of the European carp, the solution may be, rather ironically, a virus. A strain of herpes is hoped to provide a much-needed boost to eradication efforts. But this doesn't fix the larger problem at hand, which is the lack of water, or at least the mismanagement of what water is available. Everyone, it seems, has a different opinion. If you're upstream, you take too much water, and if you're downstream, you want too much water. The regulation of who gets what is a mixed affair that varies across states and tributaries. Environmentalists want more water for the wetlands, while some farmers claim these ecosystems are just environmental leaks where water can evaporate and escape to the atmosphere. Cotton growers have become the scapegoat of choice, and while they definitely use a lot of water, reality is never that simple. And of course, the wild flowing river of popular imagination just doesn't exist anymore. The river is now effectively a network of piping and pump stations, weirs and watercourses, dams and irrigation ditches. It's a human landscape. If we really want to keep the water flowing, I think Noel Castry is right. We need to have a different collective imagination about what is possible. We need to remember we are mammals. Well, that wraps up episode four. A big thank you to all of my interviewees and a huge shout out to Alicia DeCarli who invited me on that life-changing trip 
down to the Murray. I also want to acknowledge the amazing article written for the quarterly essay by Margaret Simons. If you want to learn more about the Murray Darling, I'd recommend you go read it. It's brilliantly written. And next time on How to Be a Mammal, I get thoroughly out of my comfort zone and go talk to my mum and some midwives. Yep, I'm going to go learn how to give birth to a baby. See you then.